Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. It's good to be with you. Uh, this Sunday, we are starting a new fall series in the book of Hosea. So if you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of Hosea. It'll be in the Old Testament. If you're using the blue uh, pew Bible, it's on page 751. This morning, we'll be in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, Found in the book of Hosea this morning for us, verses 1 to 11 in that first chapter. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bari, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel In the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. We pray now that as we have just read your word and heard it, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. We pray that by your spirit, you would soften our hearts, such as a word or a seed goes out into good soil. As the word goes out, that it would go into our heart as well and produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in Jesus' name only. Amen. Well, the year is 722 B.C., And you are a Jew living in what is known as the Southern Kingdom uh, or Judah. For all of your life, you lived under the governance of a king. And as long as you can remember, there have always been two kingdoms that make up your people. There's the Northern Kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. And then there's where you live, the Southern Kingdom, which is referred to as Judah. Think North and South Dakota. Since then, you've lived under uh, many kings. Um, King Uzziah would be the first in his reign in Judah. 
Um, after him, Jotham and Ahaz. And they've all been pretty good kings who continued to root out the worship of other gods in the land. But for the most of your life, much of the turmoil has been to the north. Ever since the days of Je- uh, Jeroboam, uh, the son of Joash, things seem to have gotten just worse and worse and worse. Jeroboam reigned and ended about 30 or 40 years ago. In fact, after Jeroboam's death in, in the 13 year period, the northern kingdom Israel experienced uh, five different kings in that, that span of time. All of which, well most of them anyways, were assassinated by their own people. To say what is already obvious, things continued to get worse in the north. But where did this all start? How did we get here? Well, the history is a little foggy to you, but what you remember from school is that about 280 years ago or 1000 BC, there was a great king named David that was king over all of the tribes of Israel. So it wasn't divided at this point. And while David wasn't perfect, your people considered this to be a golden age. There was peace in the land, but more importantly, there was fidelity of worship towards the one true God. David, though, had a son named Solomon who took over the kingdom. And then after his death, Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, who became king, well, he wasn't a great king. He did some things that made a lot of people angry. So angry that 10 of the 12 tribes said, we don't have to sit under his rule. And so we will be the northern kingdom. We will be Israel. We are not going to be a part of this. Which left two tribes to the south, Judah, where you live. For almost 200 years, the north and south fought over who was the true Israel. The north said that they were because they had more people and more land. But the south said that they were because their kings were coming in the actual line of David. Which was really important. But also, their capital was Jerusalem. Now, it's been going on like this for years to today, 722 B.C., In the midst of this, many kings have come and gone in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. But Israel remains a divided nation. Over the past 30 or 40 years, things in the north have gotten much worse. During King Jeroboam's reign, our hometown, your hometown, sent a prophet by the name of Amos to go and and call them to repentance. And repentance of what? Well, a lot of things, but namely... They have completely forsaken their God. They don't worship him anymore. They worship other gods from neighboring nations. It is, it is almost as if they are in a place of, a, of being apostate. And then later, around that same time, God also sent a prophet named Hosea who went to the north as well. We haven't seen or heard from him since. But that's kind of how we got here. And so as you grab your stuff to head out for the day... After your coffee and breakfast and thinking of this history to yourself, you walk out in the streets and you notice that everybody is running around. There's a lot of panic, it seems like, in the streets and people are talking and people are are, are exclaiming and and some people are in tears and you're trying to figure out what's happening. And so you go and you ask and finally someone tells you it's Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. It has been taken by Assyria, which is a neighboring pagan nation. They have come into the north finally and they have destroyed and are taking over the northern kingdom as you know it. People are dying and people are fleeing to the south as we speak. And the only thing that can actually come to mind as a Jew in the south is to say to yourself, it's happening. It's happening. 
Well, what exactly is happening? Well, I want to suggest that that's really what the book of Hosea is about. Hosea was the last and final prophet to the northern kingdom. His ministry was between 755 and 730 B.C. And he went to Israel, the northern kingdom, just before Assyria came in as an act of God's judgment and destroyed it in 722 B.C. Hosea brought a message of repentance to the people who were essentially apostate, worshiping other gods and forgetting their covenant promises that Yahweh would be their God and that they would, in fact, be his people. You might say that Hosea was God's last plea to call his people back to himself before the consequences of breaking the covenant were experienced in full. But in 722, everything that Hosea said would happen, happened. But while Hosea was a prophet to the north, it's actually you, the southern kingdom, that was the first to read his words. As you watch all of this unfold from Jerusalem in the coming years, you will read Hosea's words to a nation that actually is no more. It's a message then that forces you to ask if God would do this to the northern kingdom, if this could happen to them, what about us? Which means that his message is just as much for the south where you live as it was for the north. But what Hosea is about more than anything is not so much about what you should do or what you should think about God, although that is there. What Hosea is about is actually what God truly thinks of you. See, quite unlike any other book, Hosea gives us the clearest picture of what God thinks about his people, whom, as we'll see, are like a spouse to him. But not just any spouse, an unfaithful one, whom God never gives up on. And what Hosea shines a candle towards, what Jesus will ultimately become a spotlight to, is how the God of the Bible goes after the unfaithful at the expense of himself. This is love to the loveless, which is actually what we're naming our series this fall in the book of Hosea. Having kind of given us a little bit of footing on the timeline of Hosea for the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at two brief things with the text that's before us. And that is first, I want us to look at how the book of Hosea works. And then I want us to see what does Hosea want from us? What does Hosea want us to take away from this story? So let's look at that first one, how the book of Hosea works. Hosea is really broken up into two sections. This is part one of the first section. It'll be chapters one through three. And we'll look at the rest of that next week. The next section is chapters 4 through 13. And just the way to think about those two sections is chapters 1 through 3 is sort of the the overview of the story as a whole. And then 4 through 13 gets into the nitty-gritty details of what's really going on. So when we open open chapter 1 here with verse 2, we get the bigger picture of what the story is about. Let's look at that with verse 2 again. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go. Take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, if you've been around the church, you know that when the Bible says something once, twice, three times, it's kind of important. Um, Right. Uh, So as we begin here, whether you're hearing Hosea for the first time, you you might be thinking, okay, Hosea is not holding anything back. 
We're just going right at it. (laughs) And we are. He is. In these very first verses, God asked Hosea, his prophet, to take a wife of whoredom or harlotry or promiscuity. And to have children of whoredom, as the text says. For the land, which is symbolic for the people of God, right? The nation of Israel as a whole commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, to, went and took Gomer, as the text says, and, and she conceived and she bore him a son. Now take that in for just a second. Because nobody in here, including myself, right? No one in here would ever do this. This is crazy. Why is God asking Hosea to do this? Well, instead of just proclaiming a word or a message of repentance uh, to God's people, as prophets tend to do, God wants Hosea to do something he's never asked a prophet up to this point to do. And that is to live out a personified metonym, as Dearman writes, or a living metaphor for what Israel as a whole is doing with relationship to God. That is, in this living metaphor, Hosea will play God and Gomer will play the unfaithful Israel spouse. As Derek Kidner writes, what Hosea had to do was in miniature what God had done in giving his love to a partner with a history and with a roving eye. So just as Hosea will marry an unfaithful woman and have children born out of and into unfaithfulness, God will show himself married to an unfaithful people, Israel. And the physical adultery or the physical whoredom that Gomer represents will speak to the spiritual whoredom, if you will, or the spiritual adultery that is going on in Israel as they pursue other gods, as they forsake his covenant promise to be his people and for him to be their God. This is how Hosea works. Okay, so one of the things this means then is as we read Hosea this fall, it's figuring out who we are in the story. Now, almost always in the Old Testament, um, you you are rarely ever God, and you are usually not uh, any of the main characters, right? So in this case, we're not Hosea. And uh, most of the time, we are the people of God, right? We're We're the mass huddled on the side as we watch David take on Goliath. We're the people of God. And so in that case, what that means is that we are not Hosea, the faithful, but we are what? Gomer, the unfaithful, who represents God's people in the north in this case, but will also represent God's people as a whole. Now, did I just call you a a prostitute? I didn't. (laughs) But the Bible certainly did, spiritually speaking. It's a sober text. It's a final throw, as we will see. Now, while we unpack what this tells us about our own hearts in this series, the point of God having Hosea marry an unfaithful spouse is for God to not just show you who you and I truly are, spiritually speaking, but to actually show how committed God is, the faithful to us regardless. And in this commitment that we will see in God, that has, this is what has the actual power then to change our hearts and to call us back to him, to call us back to fidelity, to faithfulness. Which leads into our second point, what Hosea wants from us, which we will see as we look at the children of Hosea and Gomer. And what God wants from us is fidelity, it's faithfulness. Spiritually speaking, as any spouse would, Hosea wants intrigue, right? He wants curiosity towards the lover of our soul to increase more and more in our lives. 
But sometimes God has to get our attention. Sometimes the message that we receive comes at the expense of others who ignored it too long, such as the northern kingdom. So we must heed God's words to them lest we turn out the same. The warning or message then couldn't be clear in the names of the children that Hosea and Gomer have, which we turn to now. As we look at verse 4, if you look there, you'll see that Gomer has uh, Gomer and Hosea have their first child, Jezreel. Now, the word Jezreel, which, which, which sounds like Israel, if you haven't noticed, literally means God sows or to plant. And this meaning will have special significance later on in the book. But for now, what the point of, of naming this child Jezreel is, is not so much its literal meaning, but like what, it would, what people would think of when they heard the word Jezreel. And what they would think of would be bloodshed, a massacre that happened many, many years ago. And you can read about it in First and Second Kings. It would be a great Sunday school lesson of what happened there. It'd be like naming your child Auschwitz, if I'm saying that right, or 9-11, right? What comes to mind when you hear those words? That's, that, that's the potency behind this word Jezreel. People, the, the, the Jews would hear this and they would think, bloodshed, why would you name your child this? But it doesn't end there. This is the first child. Shortly after Gomer has another child that is debatable as to whether or not this came from Hosea. And this child's name would be no mercy. We see this in verse 6. Hosea is a name, the second child, no mercy here. With the first child, God was telling Israel what will essentially happen to Israel as a nation. You will be bloodshed. With the second and third, though, God is telling Israel the new state of their relationship with him. Because of their faithlessness and their lack of repentance. What God is telling Israel through the naming of this child is to you who I have shown mercy by making my people I will no longer show mercy to. We will see more of this next week and why. But as Marvin Sweeney writes, the daughter's name, no mercy, clearly signifies the reversal of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel as it is portrayed in the Mosaic tradition, which harkens back to Moses, which is the foundation tradition of Israel's existence and sense of identity. Words like this have not been spoken before. This reversal of relationship is driven home then in the third and final child's name, not my people. So we see there in verse 8 and 9. Now, I'm not sure if you're already, if you are already thinking about this year's Christmas card. But I'm pretty sure what you're not worried about or stressed about are the names of your kids. And so if you're going to receive this card in the mail, right? (laughs) Merry Christmas from Hosea, Gomer, Bloodshed. No mercy and not my child, not my son. That's what that's the effect that this would have. And the point of this is that as they roamed around the streets, Israel, right to the north, especially, but now to the south, would actually look at this and be like, hmm, what is that? What is God trying to tell us? (laughs) What's happening here? And you see the effect. This is the point. This is how uh, not only we will read Hosea, but this is, this is the point that God has for them. What he wants to take away is that they would begin to see uh, their departure from him and thus his departure from them as well. 
The last name, just as much as the one before, communicates the status of unfaithful apostate Israel and the resulting consequences from their faithlessness. All of this is covenant language. There are blessings for keeping this covenant and there are curses for not keeping this covenant. And what the northern kingdom is experiencing in 722 is the final straw of what those final curses are. It's either exile or it's complete takeover. The covenant contract or formula at this point, as we may remember, is heard all over the Old Testament in such places as Exodus 6-7, which God said to Moses, He said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. That is, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's, That's the formula. But now Israel is not my people. Which means as well that God is no longer their God. The great I am, which is the name of Yahweh to Moses, is now the I am not. Bloodshed, no mercy, not my people. How is that for getting your attention? All right, so what's the point here then? Well, what was already true for the northern kingdom, as, as we said, wasn't true yet for the southern kingdom. As they heard these words, there was in one sense still time. And as Tim Chester summarizes, God wanted to shake his people out of their spiritual infidelity before it was too late. He could have come without warning. Or he could have made do with Hosea preaching sermons. But he went further. He embodied his message in the mess of Hosea's family to convey then and now his call to return before it is too late. By 722, it had become too late for the northern kingdom. The question now was, what about you, Judah? What about the south? How will you embrace the terms of God's covenant promise to be his people and he, your only true God? Because what God wants from you more than anything, like any spouse would, is fidelity to the relationship. He wants to be yours only and he wants you to be his only. Well, how will Israel do this? That's the question, right? And that's a question that we'll continue to look at for the rest of this series. Well, they will trust that God will send someone to be faithful when they could not. That's the big answer. That's the big question to the big answer to that question. How will Israel do this? The big, the big answer to that is they will trust that God will send someone to be faithful when they could not. Someone who embodies fidelity to a T. And as they wait, their call and response to covenantal faithfulness, which is a big clunky word, is to repent. It's, it's the big, I'm sorry. It's the big, will you forgive me? Which was God's plea through Hosea to the north one very last time. Will you come back? Just come back. And they wouldn't hear him. And now these words are being brought to the south. And the same is going to be true for the south as well. Will they repent? Because biblical repentance is not about getting better in one sense. It's not about pulling up your bootstraps and trying harder. What biblical repentance is trusting in the work of another on your behalf. You in the south don't really know what that means at this point. But you in Fort Worth in 2020, you do, right? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. 
It's trusting that God will show us mercy if we repent and return to him because that's what this faithful husband does. What makes us desire right, to be his people, what makes us desire fidelity towards God, what sets our hearts on him more than anything is not conjuring up feelings towards God ourselves, but seeing again and again his true feelings towards you, his, his work for you. And on, on your behalf, his grace. And we see that in so many places throughout the book of Hosea. But where you see it so clearly and more powerfully than anywhere else in scripture is in Jesus. The faithful one for the unfaithful many. Look back at verse 7 and then 10 and 11 as well. This is, this is incredible. Verse 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And he just won't have mercy because that's not enough. See, I will what? Save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or or war or horses or horsemen. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Right. This is an echo of a a former promise to Abraham talking about his children being as many as, as, as there are stars in the sky. He's not forgotten his promise. And he goes on to say, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. As Derek Kinder writes, this is astounding. There are three disastrous oracles utterly reversed and a promise of family reunion thrown in for good measure. The heart of this good news is reconciliation. Before we get out of chapter one, we are told that somehow God's promises to his people will not be removed in spite of the sin of his people. Besides, uh, in spite of the unfaithfulness of his people. That as they are called to repent, called to trust in the work of another, God is still saying, regardless of what has happened up north, I will still provide that. And guess what, Judah? In 586, you also come to the same thing. You won't be able to do this. You will not be able to embody fidelity. And so I will send one who can. And his name is Jesus. What Hosea teaches us about Jesus then is that he will be the faithful one where God's people were what? Unfaithful. Where you and I are what? Unfaithful. In the ways that he calls us to be. And what that means is that Jesus will die on a cross ultimately for the whoredom of his own people. For the unfaithfulness of you and me. In other words, when, 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 when your people won't listen to your message, what do you do? I don't know what I do besides scream and pull my hair out. But I know what, what God does. He embodies his message and he lays his life down. Because what Hosea tells us about the cross then is that this is actually the place that will become bloodshed. Not Israel, not you. The cross will be, as Jesus hangs there, he will become the one who has truly shown no mercy as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not you, not me. And on the cross, Jesus will become the one who is not my child. Not you, not me. As God pours his wrath out on him so that you and I, for those who believe in Jesus, may be what? Planted. Sown by God. That we may be Jezreel. For real. For eternity with God. That we might always have God's mercy and always be his people. The cross is where, as Tim Chester writes, God's jealous anger and passionate love 
come together. God judged Christ for our adultery, for our whoredom, so that we can again be his family. This is love to the loveless. This is our story. Just as much as it's Israel's story and just as much as it is Judah's story. And that's how much, that, that is what God thinks about you. As I said earlier, Hosea is not so much a book about, about what you should think about God, although it is. It's actually more a book about what God thinks about you. About how he, how he feels towards you. He is a committed spouse who goes after his unfaithful bride, even unto his death. And only when we know this, only when the song of grace gets into our hearts, the more we want nothing than to belong to him, the more he becomes what our heart's true desire is. A week ago uh, today for our fifth and sixth grade ministry that we call Gab, we had our first sort of swim social. And at the social, uh, this was a time for all fifth and sixth graders to come up and to uh, show off a little bit of their memorization skills by uh, reciting questions and answers to the catechism uh, that we had learned up to that point. And so um, one of the uh, motivations for this as we were there was there was this big basket of prizes, uh, you know, just candy and the whatnot. And so everybody lined up and it was really, like, really impressive. Everybody had something memorized and then, you know, if they hadn't been doing anything up to this point, what's your favorite Bible verse? Okay, great, get a prize. And everybody loved it, right? It was great. Um, except there were these three little girls that belonged to me who sort of sat off to the side and watched this, who were not yet fifth and sixth graders, who were mesmerized by what they were watching. It had to have been like a miniature Christmas to the kindergartner, second and fourth grader with all these prizes and candy all in this basket. And they weren't getting any of it. Uh, well, none of this occurred to me until it was time for us to go. And as I was packing up the stuff in the car and then, you know, taking this basket of prizes left over for the rest of the, of the semester, our time together, to put it back in the car that I realized I had an audience still. I had a shadow. I was that kindergartner again, that second and fourth grader. Daddy, what's in the, what's in the basket? What's in there? I got, can, I, can, can I have one? Like, what, what are you going to do with all that stuff? I said, no, this is for you. You'll be a fifth and sixth grader soon, Not, let alone I think you're doing fine as it pertains to candy and prizes anyways. Get in the car. Let's go home. Well, this wouldn't be the end of it. In fact, all of them strangely wanted to ride home with me. Um, Ada was there at the same time. She'd driven everybody there. But they all wanted to ride with me. Uh, when we got home, I was asked twice before I got out of the car, what's in the back? Can we go look at those, those things, those prizes? What are you going to do with them? Can we have one? The next morning before breakfast was served, Again, Daddy, are those prizes still in the back of, the, of your car? <laughs> All week, whether I'm taking someone to soccer practice or I'm coming home from work, right, and they're waking and then they're sleeping each day, can I see what's in the basket? What are you going to do with those prizes? Can I have one? The curiosity and the intrigue, let alone the fidelity to a basket full of 2 to $3 prizes, was astounding. They wanted nothing else. And that's what Jesus wants for us. That's what he wants in us. Right? He, like, like, like the basket of toys that you just can't get your mind off of. He's that spouse that wants to be what our hearts most desire. He wants, like any lover, our full attention and, and fidelity towards him. 
That in our sleeping and in our waking, our curiosity and intrigue towards him would actually what continue to grow and grow and grow. And the way that happens, at least the way that God has worked it into our lives to happen, is actually seeing his love for us when we don't love him back. That's Hosea. That's Hosea. Because all of us, to go back to this wonderful quote, like Israel, like Judah, right? We all have a history. And we all have a history with roving eye. You do and I do, spiritually speaking. Yet none of that kept Jesus from staying committed to you. And no matter who you are in this room, this very moment, all of us want to know that that type of love exists, that it is real. And what Hosea is here to tell us and what the cross ultimately shows us is that it is, friends. It is real. Not in Hosea himself and certainly not in the nation of Israel. Not in you. It is real in only one person and that is Jesus. Jesus. And my question as we leave here is, do you know that kind of love? Do you know it? Would you like to know it better? Because I would. I would. And so I would ask you to to stay with us. Join us this fall as we see this kind of love in the book of Hosea. And as we do so, it is my prayer that you would grow in your own curiosity and your own intrigue towards Jesus, your faithful spouse, as you see just how committed he is to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. That you preserved the words of your prophet Hosea. That by someone they made the trek south to deliver those words to your people in Judah. And we have them today. And we're thankful because without them we don't know the full extent of what Jesus is doing for us on the cross. The true place of both bloodshed, but of reconciliation as well. Where, where people, where, where we were not his people, that we become his people at his expense. Where we once did not have mercy, but now are shown mercy at his expense. What greater love is this? Would you draw us to that this fall as we look at Hosea? Would you draw us uh, to see and to, to get clearer glimpses of your beauty for us, towards us? By what Jesus has done on our behalf. And would this call forth in us great acts of repentance. And great acts of joy as we long uh, to be uh, with him. As this becomes our heart's one true desire over anything else in this world. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen.